Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Lots of economics today. In moments, we'll hear from Grace Blakely on where the current order came from and how we might get out of it. And then Emmanuel Saez reviews the modern trajectory of the rich versus everyone else, how the upper brackets came to claim most of the income growth and pay very little in taxes, and how that all could be changed. Grace Blakely is an English economics commentator and an advisor to the Labor Party. Her new book, Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, is just out from repeater books. Grace Blakely. You said early in the book, businesses once focused on producing goods and services for which they have a competitive advantage. But you know, capitalism has always been about money. Finance has always been a big thing. We had the American 19th century, one scam after another. We had our 1920s with the South Sea bubble, mm. if you go back far enough. What is different now? What has changed? The big shift, I suppose, has been from the kind of post-war period, that period which was you know, remembered by many as the kind of golden age of capitalism. During the post-war period, you had a kind of corporatist relationship, I suppose, between the state, businesses and, and labour. For a while, that uh, balance of power in society gave rise to an economic model, at least in the US and the UK, that was relatively more equal and under which corporations were less financialized. And this also relates to the international context. So the fact that uh, under Bretton Woods, there were strict limits on capital mobility. As a result of that kind of social democratic system in the US, you had a much tighter restrictions on, uh, on the finance sector. That particular consensus emerged as a result of a, a shift in the balance of power between labor and capital after the, the Second World War. And that it was steadily eroded through, through the course of that period by the increasing dominance of finance, by the kind of pushing of those financial institutions against the restrictions that had sought to contain them. In the 1970s, the system broke down altogether. You've got outright conflict between labour and capital rather than this corporatist system that sought to manage that relationship. And out of that period of breakdown and crisis emerged a new model, which was much more focused on the generation of, of money from money rather than via commodities production. Let's talk some about what went wrong in the 70s. There's a theory of inflation that it's uh, produced by an unresolved class conflict, that neither workers nor the bosses can get the upper hand. That characterized a lot of the 70s. You quote Koletsky's uh, political aspects of full employment. The, the sack had lost its sting. You know, a lot of people think we could just made some bad decisions and we can go back to the status quo ante, but there's some really serious problems in the 70s that had to be addressed by a break one way or the other. The kind of demand-pull theory of, of inflation... It works to an extent, but only after you've had some sort of catalyzing push to begin with. So, I mean, you know, the, the oil price spike in the 1970s is what really starts driving that, that round of inflation that you see in the 1970s. Following that, the kind of attempt by bosses to, you know, cut costs in order to, in order to shore up their profits, combined with the attempt by organized labor to just kind of maintain standards of living and, and wages, leads to an outright industrial conflict in that context. So it's not really just the case that labor gets more and more and more powerful and then suddenly inflation rises. It's labor gets more and more and more powerful. And as long as inflation in terms of cost push inflation is low and as long as, you know, there are new markets into which to expand, etc., then that conflict remains kind of latent. But the oil price spike and the collapse of Bretton Woods pulls that conflict out into the fore and makes explicit some of those latent contradictions that were present in the social democratic model throughout the entire period of the post-war. Bourgeoisie also felt like it was losing control. You know, you had the yeah. blue-collar blues in the United States, you had the, the winter of discontent in Britain. It was just like things were slipping out of their control and they wanted a crackdown. 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, there were kind of these contradictions that existed within that social democratic model, the contradictions that arose effectively from trying to elide the inherent tensions that exist between labour and capital, um, which is true of any social democratic system. And that that is inevitably what led to this period of crisis. But then when we got to that period of crisis, there were two different paths, I suppose, that could have been taken out of that capital knew that right so that was the path that we ended up taking which was the neoliberal path but also given that we were in a position where the balance of power between labor and capital was relatively more equal especially than it is today you know you could have imagined a situation in which we could have gone towards a more explicitly socialist rather than social democratic model so yeah i mean you can imagine why capital was skittish at that point because that was something that was being talked about after those several decades of the power of labour becoming steadily more institutionalised and class consciousness becoming um, much more pronounced, there was, I think, that sense that it was going to go one way or another. And I think that is a sense that characterises most periods of crises that you get caused by capitalism. So, you know, I argue we're living in one of those decades of crisis now since the financial crash. You could say of the 70s, you could say of the period following the Great Depression, Um, even, you know, the period following all the economic chaos in the 1890s. Like there are these moments where it seems like both in terms of ideas and ideologies and in terms of class relations, there are much more conflict and there's a, a sense of contingency about what happens next. Yeah, there's that old jargon of the French regulationists, the, the social structure of accumulation works for a while and then it doesn't. Mm. And we're in a period where it doesn't yeah. now. And the 70s was a period where it didn't either. Mm. And you need, some, you need a new structure. Mm. And we don't have one now. When Thatcher and Reagan and Volcker, and they were really like you know, the personifications of this turn, they had a real set of plans ready. Uh, you know, the Mont Pelerin crowd had really been working since the late 1940s. They really um, had a playbook uh, and they'd been planning. And the new system that uh, Reagan and Thatcher and et al. brought about had an internal coherence to it and lasted for a while, right? So what was that system about? Describe that, uh, that model. That system is built on the ideology of neoliberalism, what people call neoliberalism. And, and I view neoliberalism and, and finance-led growth as broadly complementary in the sense that I see neoliberalism as the ideology and finance-led growth is the kind of outcome of the implementation of that ideology. In the same way that you can think of Keynesianism as the ideology of the post-war period and social democracy or various other the post-war consensus as, as what emerges from that. And so the sets of ideas that the neoliberals came up with were based on insights from neoclassical economics, the idea that the market is the most efficient way of uh, managing production allocation and that if markets don't exist, they should be created and that the state should play a role in creating those markets if it needs to. So, for example, this is kind of a stepping up of the ideology of the classical liberals in the sense that if there are groups or institutions that are getting in the way of what they see as the free market economy, they should be crushed. So that's the kind of, you know, the intellectual background to it. But if you look at the ideological basis of it, and you can see that when you look at the state, it is basically a plan to rebalance power in society away from labour and towards capital and to a particular part of capital, finance capital, that is becoming hegemonic, particularly when you look and at the And so the rhetoric system. of personal freedom. Exactly, yeah. So that's the kind of founding ideology of it. The, the discourse around it is the unions are getting in the way of the kind of uh, freedom of the individual. We have a, a state that's too big, that's supporting scroungers and, uh, and, you know, thugs who are holding our democracy to ransom. And Thatcher's whole idea was that we needed to kind of liberate the entrepreneurial spirit of the individual. And that the best way to do that was to kind of 
smash up the unions, free markets, privatise state industries, and crucially, I think, create a class of mini capitalists. So extend property ownership, housing or, you know, stocks and shares through pension funds, etc. You know, she famously said, the um, discipline is economics, the object is to change the soul, right? Yeah, she was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. And it actually, it was pretty successful. It really yeah. changed the way people view the world. One of the things it did was to cause people to lose any faith in politics or collective action. It was mm. all just self-individual initiative. Yeah, and you know what? I think part of that has to do with the political failures of that social democratic period. Because I think if you look at the UK, the reason Thatcher could make that argument about individual freedom was partly because we had this Morrisonian structure of state ownership in the UK where it was very much the Treasury controlling things or the Department of Trade and Industry controlling things rather than what democratic socialists are talking about today, which is worker ownership, which is where there is nationalised ownership, you have much greater engagement with democratic structures, elected boards or worker representation on boards or, or stuff like that. So you had one kind of period where society and the economy arguably functioned much better, but it was easy for Thatcher to argue that the spirit of the individual was being oppressed. And so she went all the way in the opposite direction and basically created a society and an economy premised upon rigorous and ruthless competition between individuals. Uh, she famously said there's no such thing as society. So the spread of, of free market relations destroyed the kind of social basis of, of communities and uh, the way in which people understood themselves as part of those well, she communities. She conceded there are families, but nothing beyond yes, the family. Yes, exactly. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole idea was to kind of destroy any social solidarity, really, because... There was, a, there was a lot of resistance that came out of communities, so networks of solidarity to that model. You see that particularly during the miners' crisis, when you get people from all over the country donating to the miners. Lesbians and gays support the miners. Like, mining communities are typically very tight. And exactly. Very, you know, here too, and solidaristic. Yeah. And yeah. She saw that it was very important to break that apart. Exactly, because she needed people to conceive of themselves as competitive individuals, ruthlessly going up against each other in this free market system that would sort the wheat from the chaff and that if you just worked hard enough, everyone could get to the top. She sought to break up forms of social insurance that were provided by the state that allowed everyone to live in a house if they didn't own one, that allowed everyone to you know, have access to a pension and said, no, it's your responsibility to own your own house have your own pension, provide your own individual forms of social insurance. And that led to the channeling of people's savings into stock markets and the creation of a huge amount of credit to allow individuals to purchase property rather than obviously the mass, the mass sell-off of social housing in the UK. And this was always built on the ideology that it's up to you. You have to save for your retirement. You have to own your house. And if you're too stupid or lazy to be able to do those things, it's your own fault. You don't deserve social housing or a pension or any of those things. And, of course, if your wages and benefits are under attack, uh, the thing to do is borrow your way out of exactly. misery. Privatized right. Keynesianism. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of that going on. Mm. I'm speaking with Grace Blakely, author of Stolen, just out from Repeater Books. Now, I can't remember who said this, but uh, it was someone, <laughs> that the greatest achievement of Thatcher was the creation of new labor. Yes, that uh, was Thatcher. <laughs> was that Thatcher? Thatcher said her greatest achievement was the creation of new uh, okay. labor. Yeah. All right, that was... Uh, yeah. She's a smart woman uh, for that. <laughs> uh, but you can say there's something similar here, uh, the, the, what, the transformation of the Democratic Party. So th this third way of politics was very important because that the savage chapter of the 80s mm. went awry. Everyone saw this as excessive. Mm. And you know, we had John Major and 
uh, George H.W. Bush, who were shadows of their predecessors. Mm. And like the ideology, the program had lost a lot of its energy. Mm. And along come Clinton and Blair yeah. to consolidate those gains. Talk about the, the role of the third way in getting us where we are now politically. Yeah, there's a quote in there from the late, great Tony Benn uh, saying the establishment decided that their project would be safer with a strong Blair government than a weak major government. And I think you can say the same thing in, in the U.S. New Laborism and, and that ideology, the third way ideology that you also see in the U.S. and in various other parts of Europe, it emerges from the acknowledgement that there have been some superficial failures to the neoliberal model, predominantly rising inequality. We had had a big housing crisis in, um, and, and financial crisis at the end of the 1980s in the UK, which, again, was, it was a kind of mini-2008. So it was a, an acknowledgement that some things weren't working quite as well as they could, uh, and that the parties that had erected this system didn't really have any of the answers. So the, the third way, I argue, is basically premised upon an acceptance of the structures of neoliberalism, the uh, um, kind of institutionalization of the power of finance through central bank independence was a big thing, consistent financial deregulation, and just the assumption that the finance sector was kind of the goose that lays the golden eggs, that we need to encourage its development if we are going to pay for the things that we want to pay for. This is kind of where the, re- the redistributive agenda really comes into the fore. It's not the case that we need to create uh, an economic and political system that generates fair outcomes. All we need to do is kind of shave off the, the sharpest edges of the neoliberal order by taxing finance, taxing some of the rich. And those... there's little expansion of social welfare, welfare under Blair. Yeah, exactly. Blair, yeah. So, yeah, and, and yeah, to the idea of being taxing those people and then using that to provide some benefits for those kind we of left out. <laughs> this is the left behind ideology, yeah. right? Which you can see is not any real challenge to this ideology of neoliberalism, it's just we should be a bit nicer. It's neoliberalism, but a little bit nicer. And also the degree of social tolerance that the the old order didn't have. Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it. That's true. The Tories had developed this reputation as the nasty party in the UK. And Blairism, I mean, it really did, I suppose, shift the terrain of political contestation from the economic to the social. You know, the economic was broadly settled. There was just a question of both making society fairer for certain social groups and also removing the horrific restrictions that still then existed for various different groups in society, particularly LGBT uh, people. And also, you know, there was still, and there, I mean, in the US, you still have this massive legacy of, of racism and ongoing racism. And there was still that to an extent in our legal institutions in the UK. There was definitely a shift then, and that was an important shift, but it basically allowed New Labour to continue to kind of support and encourage the development of an extractive and unstable economic model whilst claiming to be the nice guys. Yeah, there was um, an advisor on uh, Clinton's National Security Council who said that democracy only works when there's fundamental agreement on the nature of property. Mm. And they got that. Yeah. And then all that fell apart in 2008. Like, you know, this whole model fell apart and it did collapse because of its own internal contradiction. Right. It's not some accident that just happened. It was real. Like the whole model That social structure of accumulation just blew up, right? Yeah. We shouldn't see 2008 as just a transatlantic banking crisis. as just a couple of banks that got a bit too greedy and borrowed a bit too much. We should see it as based on the fundamental logic of this system of finance-led growth. What are the banks playing around with? 
and they're playing around with mortgages. Why are they playing around with mortgages? Because the, the state had deregulated banking and had privatized the social housing stock and had, in the US, created institutions designed to securitize those mortgages so that they could extend property ownership to a larger number of people. Um, it's, you know, a similar sort of thing with firms that had become highly leveraged and, uh, and, and fairly unstable. It was uh, based on the financialization of the corporation, right? The ideology that it was the only responsibility of firms to maximize value for shareholders. And if they had to become heavily indebted in order to pay out dividends and buy up other corporations, then that's that. So what happens in 2008 is, yes, a banking crisis, but it has its roots in the changing structures of the economy, particularly that bank deregulation and the desire to extend property ownership to a larger number of people. So the reaction to the 2008 crisis uh, was somewhat different on the two sides of the Atlantic. The conservative governments in Britain instituted homegrown austerity. They didn't need the IMF or the Mm. EU to tell them to do it. They did it all by by Mm. themselves. In the US, we had a brief stimulus, but since then, government spending was pretty tight. There is no fundamental change to anything. We had some improved regulation of finance, but Mm. nothing like we did in the 1930s. It's like we're just sort of sleepwalking. How would you characterize this period we're in now? I mean, we're in that this kind of Gramscian moment, right, between the death of the old model and the birth of something new. I think in many ways, those on the left kind of expected 2008 to immediately lead to this big transformation and the reemergence of socialism, right? But it's kind of not that surprising that it didn't. Firstly, because big structural changes don't actually tend to happen in the midst of crises, because in the midst of a crisis, the psychology is, let's just wait it out and things will get back to normal. Go back to your way of doing things. Exactly. It's only after long periods of stagnation that people start to think, right, actually, I'm going to be better off under a very different kind of system than I am under the You get this quasi-recovery and people say, things still stink. Yes, exactly, right? And especially young people, because there is this older generation that was able to kind of jump on that boom period and now has a whole bunch of wealth stored up in their homes, their pension funds, whatever. But for young people who are completely unable to get on the property ladder, working long hours for less pay in insecure jobs, know that they'll probably never retire and that the climate is collapsing around them. This is a revolutionary moment for many, many young people. And even for those who are slightly older, you know, we're seeing in the UK, you have this big problem of an aging population combined with the retreat of the state from providing any form of of social security. So in the UK, that is becoming a problem because, yes, there's a bunch of older people who have wealth stored up in their home, but a load of them are going to have lose all of that paying for their end of life care. We have reached this kind of tipping point where more people are starting to see that they are going to be made better off under a different system. And as that shifts, you start to see an equally important shift is a shift in dominant ideologies and and identities, I suppose, because, you know, we were talking about how everyone, people's identity under this neoliberal period became built on competition, striving, individualistic understanding of themselves. That, as well as what Mark Fisher termed capitalist realism, which is the idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, is just important to challenge, as is you know, all this other big structural stuff, right? Because we need people who are going to want to engage in building power in their workplaces, in their communities, to re-engage in these networks of solidarity, often to rebuild those networks if we're going to get from here to there. You know, we're not going to get out of this crisis just by electing a government that does some nice policies. We have to fundamentally shift power between labour and capital. And that means, as well as 
changing what the state is doing, changing what we're doing, like facilitating that reemergence of that class consciousness that we we definitely had more of in the in the 70s in the UK, and I'm I'm sure it was fairly similar in the US. Yeah, no, well, there's mm-hmm. a saying that uh, the 70s were when the 60s happened to the working class. Right. That, yeah, that, that yeah, yeah, that's great. I'll uh, urge people to buy the book and uh, read for your full program. But um, you talk uh, quite a bit at the end uh, about socializing finance. Yeah. Challenge of that is that finance, aside from looking like you know this weird growth on a productive sector, actually is also a system of power. Yeah, uh, it's a system for exercising class power and yeah. ownership, which looks obscure and fetishistic and weird to a lot of people. But it really it, there is a fundamental core of power. So it's not a walk in the woods mm. socializing finance. But like, what do you have in mind by what what, what kinds of uh, approaches to socializing this this beast do you have? The kind of inspiration for this is Hilferding, who said that he um, was a Marxist theorist, who said that development of the finance sector in many ways provides avenues that will make it easier for us to socialize wealth. Because it's already a partial socialization. Exactly. I mean, you can think, you know, just the emergence of like equity markets and stock markets is one of those avenues because you don't need to spend a lot of money buying up an entire corporation that doesn't have, you know, transparent ownership structures. You just buy up a bunch of stocks and in a day, the control over that corporation belongs to you, right? And there's also this question of when we started getting the privatization of pension funds, there were a bunch of socialists who were like, this is great. Workers own these companies. So, you know, we're basically already at socialism. Of course, you know, this is where financial intermediation as power comes in because pension funds send their capital to asset managers who control huge pools of capital and use their power to extract as much as they conceivably can from workers and actually from other sections of capital as well. I think one of the most interesting proposals in the book is for the creation of a people's asset manager. So rather than having, you know, pension funds send their money to asset managers who use their power of the corporations to extract, you have pension funds send their money to a people's asset manager, which has a democratically elected board, union representation, state representation, and uses its power to encourage very different forms of corporate governance, to boost wages, to boost environmental standards. But we should be honest, as reasonable and uh, as that sounds, I mean, that is striking at the core of capitalist yeah. power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would create a huge amount of resistance, which is why there's a bunch of stuff, I think, in there that we need to do first to constrain the power of finance. So I've got a bunch of proposals to properly regulate the banks, to constrain credit creation, to constrain capital mobility, so stop them being able to move their money all around, to create forms of public banking um, that would erode the dominance of the, of the private banks, particularly the big investment banks, and as well as that, doing a bunch of stuff to boost the power of, of working people. Social housing, probably investing in public services, all the, the stuff that we, four-day week, all the kind of basic stuff that, that we would think about would be natural, naturally part of a socialist programme. Um, and, you know, perhaps the proper socialisation stuff in terms of the people's asset manager, in terms of wider nationalisations than just those things that are natural monopolies. Is the second term priority? I don't know. We'll have to see. It's certainly going to be difficult working within the structures of the Labour Party to convince people that they need to have this fight now. But basically, I think, I don't see these proposals in this book as like a plan. I see them as a set of demands to be articulated by a movement. And if the movement finds these proposals convincing, then that's the only way that they're going to get implemented because 
like people with who are going into state power are not automatically going to think as they haven't throughout history let's pick a fight with finance let's pick a fight with you know the most powerful forces in society because they'll be scared of losing and they'll be scared of losing their positions as a result we need a proper grassroots movement that is holding these people to account and that is also able to kind of push back you know from the other side against the power that is is going to be exerted by capital so i mean that's I think the priority, and that's why I argue that a Labour government should take on the banks the way that Thatcher took on the unions. I basically think that the priority for any socialist government should be to boost the power of working people and constrain the power of finance so that you start to get a much more self-conscious political socialist movement that is able to make these demands and, and pressure the leaders to do socialism. That was Grace Blakely, author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, just out from Repeater Books. She's also in the Labour Party's Policy Council and a commentator for the New Statesman. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of a behind-the-news favorite, We Are All Bourgeois Now by McCarthy, an old British Marx pop band from the days when Thatcherism ruled the world. Emmanuel Saez, a professor of economics at Berkeley, is part of a school of French economists, of whom Thomas Piketty is the most famous, who've been doing heroic empirical work, assembling histories of income distribution and taxation for the U.S. and a number of other rich countries. Saez is just out with a book, co-written by another member of that school, Gabriel Zuckman, called The Triumph of Injustice. How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay, published by W.W. W. Norton. It shows how we went from a world from the late 1940s into the early 1980s in which incomes grew pretty equally across the distribution to the world we've lived in since, where the very rich have thrived and everyone else is struggling to get by. And despite, or perhaps because of, how well the rich have been doing, they pay a smaller share of their income in taxes than the working class. Saez and Zuckman, who've been advising the Sanders and Warren campaigns, also show how all that could be changed. Emmanuel Saez. There are two threads here, one about income growth and distribution, and uh, the other about taxation. So let's start uh, first with the, the income growth, what in French you call the 30 glorious years. There was broad uh, and relatively equal uh, income growth across the spectrum, and then I guess the last 40 or so inglorious years, it's been another story. So you just review that history of what's happened with uh, income growth at various levels of the distribution over years. Yes, so, so we know that our market economies grow in the long term, and for the economy to function well, you want the growth to be uh, equitably distributed so that all income groups grow at the same pace in, in percent term, and that indeed was what was happening in the United States in the post-World War II. 
decades, all groups were gaining something like 2% in real term per year. So that was a pretty good growth. But then things changed dramatically uh, around 1980. And since 1980, growth has been very, very unevenly distributed, essentially real incomes on a pre-tax basis for the bottom half of the population have stagnated in real term. That is essentially zero uh, economic growth while, and growth has really concentrated towards the top with the top 1% and groups above posting enormously high growth rates, you know, like in uh, uh, China uh, today. And so, so our point is that once you see this picture, you realize that this is not a sustainable uh, situation. An economy that fails to deliver growth for half of its population, the bottom half, uh, is not going to, uh, to work in the long run. Yeah, yeah, some of your nomenclature is a little strange because you say the middle class is like the percentile is 50 to 90, and that's certainly mostly above the middle. So, uh, And then the upper middle class is the next 9%. Uh, now, somebody at the 95th percentile, is that really upper middle class? In the current view uh, projected by, by society, typically, yes, middle class is more than... Uh, uh, than what's really the median. Median is really a modest, you know, like $30,000 uh, uh, a year in, in income. And middle class is typically, you would think, as something above that. So that's why we, we place it from uh, the median all the way to the percentile uh, 90. And upper middle class, lots of people like to call themselves upper middle class, when in reality, they are fairly high in the distribution. Yeah, I mean, their incomes are well into the, uh, the six figures, right around a quarter of a million on average. Yes, and that places you almost, yes, uh, a quarter million would be upper middle class, but that's not that far from the top, the bottom of the top 1%. How are those folks doing? The, the, that percentile is 90 to 99. Uh, compared, I mean, we all know the top 1% to the top one-tenth of 1%, <laughs> the top one-hundredth of 1% have been doing very, very well. But what about 90 to 99? So, so, so here is what is so striking in, in the numbers. You have to go above percentile 90 roughly speaking, to find income groups who have an economic growth bigger than the average economy-wide. That is the numbers you hear all the time about how much the uh, American economy is growing. That number really happens around percentile 90, and everybody above gets better growth than that, and everybody below less than that. So, Essentially, the middle class itself doesn't get economic growth nearly as high as average. You have to be above percentile 90, upper middle class, to really get growth that corresponds to uh, a GDP growth. So another way to put it is that GDP growth doesn't mean anything anymore for income groups because growth is distributed so unevenly. That is, the economy may grow, but nothing percolates down to the bottom 50%, not so much in the middle class, and it's really at the top, then they have growth rates that are way higher than, uh, than average. What is driving this unequal growth in income? Was it labor income, capital income, the mix of the two? It's a mix of the two. Uh, it started as more labor income at the top, the explosion of executive compensation that starts in the, in the 1980s. And in uh, more recent decades, it's really uh, an explosion of capital income, profits of corporations, profits of businesses concentrating uh, towards the top. And so, so what is striking here, the, the, we, we've studied lots of countries for very long 
periods of time in our collective effort uh, uh, with Thomas Piketty and many others. And so what we see in the U.S. is really different from what you see in many other countries, countries in, in Europe, such as, you know, continental Europe, such as France, Scandinavia, don't experience nearly as big uh, of an increase in inequality as the U.S. And so that right there tells you that the evolution of inequality is not just due to technological change or globalization or trade with China, but is really due to uh, policy development in each country. And indeed, you know, the fact that things changed so drastically precisely around 1980 in the U.S. is is really indicative that it was, you know, the Reagan administration revolution and the huge policy changes it it ushered had had a massive impact on how economic growth would be distributed moving forward. You don't see this sort of thing in France after 1980, even after Mitterrand retreated from his original ambitious socialist agenda. Yeah, because the, the, the policy changes in France were not nearly as drastic. So first, with Mitterrand in the 80s, you have more of a socialist program, while the U.S. is, is, moving, uh, is, is moving right. And then there is retreat, but it's part-time. And then you have uh, uh, changes uh, of policies with, with the, the different presidents. So you don't have anything as clearly drastic as Reagan, who changes lots of things. And then subsequently, even when you have a democratic president such as Bill Clinton, he's not going to come back and undo uh, what Reagan uh, did. The movements are going to be very small around the, the new situation. I remember when uh, you know, he raised the, the top tax rate by three percentage points. It was like uh, the Bolshevik revolution to some people. Yeah, correct. You, you know, Reagan dropped it from 70 to 28 percent. And then the current discussions, uh, at least until this uh, police, political cycle, are really about a few points up, a few points down, but nothing as drastic as the cut that uh, uh, Reagan uh, engineered. What does the overall tax system look like now? I mean, you, 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 your analysis looks not only at the federal tax code and the federal income tax code, but also state and local taxes, which are typically overlooked in most analyses. So what uh, does the overall tax system look like for Americans? Yeah, so that's one uh, key innovation of our book. We really put together all the taxes, uh, federal, state, and and local, and see how they are distributed by income group up to 2018 after the Trump tax cut. And so when you put all the taxes together, you realize that the U.S. tax system looks essentially like a giant flat tax in the sense that each income group pays, roughly speaking, about the average, which is 28% economy-wide. We pay, including all taxes, uh, 28% of our national income in taxes. And the bottom 50%, what we call the working class, pays perhaps 25, a little bit more for the middle class, a little bit more for the upper middle class. It goes up to the uh, low 30s. And then with the striking uh, fact that, 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 that we uncover that at the very top, the system becomes regressive, and namely the very richest, what we call the the top 400. So think about them as billionaires, as they are described in the Forbes 400 list of billionaires, pay only 23%, less than what the the working class uh, is paying. And so the the reason we we find that giant flat tax in contrast to to the conventional wisdom, it's because we include the the state and local taxes, sales taxes that are very regressive, that hit the bottom a lot. And 
the reason why we, we find regressivity is we, we really go uh, all the way to the very top, and the regressivity is really striking precisely in the, in the billionaires class. When did this happen? Was this the Trump tax cuts or it, uh, before that? Trump made it worse, but it was already the case since about you know the uh, the, the 1990s, really, that the the system had flattened a lot. So it used to be the case in the 50s, 60s, 70s that the the, the very rich were paying a lot more. That went down uh, a lot, and in 2018, with the corporate tax cut that really reduces corporate tax revenue by over 40 percent, this is a big drop in the tax rate at the top. And, and the, the reason is, is simple. If you are super wealthy, so think about Warren Buffett, uh, for example, your economic income is really made through the profits of the corporation you own. So in the case of Warren Buffett, it'd be Berkshire Hathaway. And then if you don't need the money, you don't realize income. That is, you don't pay yourself dividends, you don't sell your share, so you don't realize capital gains, so you are not going to pay that much individual income tax. So the corporate tax is really the backstop, and that's the tax that really took a huge hit with the, the Trump tax cut, explaining why in 2018 the, the rate on billionaires really drops to 23%, you know, less than it, it is for the working class, while before it was a, a little bit higher. I'm speaking with the economist Emmanuel Saez, co-author of The Triumph of Injustice, just out from Norton. How much uh, of this uh, regressive tax system uh, at the very, very high end is the result of uh, rich people uh, coming up with clever tax shelters? And how much of it is uh, what, what's happened through its legislation? So it's, it, it's a combination uh, of both. Essentially, the, the history of the, of the tax system uh, that we paint uh, in, the, in the book is that the United States invented very progressive taxation in the first part of the 20th century with uh, Roosevelt and his New Deal. And for a while, that tax system succeeded in taxing the rich at very significant rates when you put together all the taxes. And then starting in the late 70s and especially the 1980s, enforcement weakened a lot. And that's really the, the, the first move of the Reagan administration is to let tax avoidance and tax evasion fester. And then you say, look, we can't tax the rich anymore. And therefore, uh, those high rates don't work. Let's, let's lower them. And that's what Reagan achieved actually on a bipartisan basis. In more recent decades, that has happened on the corporate tax side. Uh, large multinational companies have found many ways to uh, avoid paying taxes by putting profits in, in low-tax jurisdiction. And then the Trump administration comes in and says, look, it doesn't work anymore to have such a high corporate tax rate of 35%. Let's cut it down to 21%. In theory, uh, you know, according to uh, supply side theory and, and, and its, its relatives, um, those tax cuts should have resulted in a binge of investment and innovation. We haven't really seen that, have we? Yes, that was the gospel, uh, starting with Reagan. The idea that if you uh, uh, let the rich keep a higher fraction of their income, they will be more motivated to work, innovate, and the economy will benefit certainly as numbers we discussed early on. We haven't seen any gains trickling down to the bottom 50%. It, it looks more like actually you cut the rates, the tax rates on the rich, and they are able to suck up a larger 
fraction of uh, uh, economic gains, likely uh, at the expense of, of the bottom. And so most recently with the Trump tax cut, it's also very clear that his enormous tax cut on corporations that, according to orthodoxy, should have boosted investment and therefore wages, productivity. We didn't see any of that materialized. But what we did see materialized is a huge tax cut for the wealthiest. When people look back uh, at the uh, the top tax rates of the, uh, the, 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 I think, prevail from like 44 to um, 1981, you say the average was, what, 81% or so, the average top tax rate? Yes. I think the assumption that a lot of people have is, oh, nobody paid that. Those are just, you know, fake numbers. And in fact, uh, they were busy um, avoiding it cleverly. Is that true? Were people paying those tax rates? Yes, that, that's an important question. So that's what our academic work that, that we summarize in the book has been about. It's really putting together all the taxes, not only the individual income tax, but also the corporate tax, the, 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 the payroll tax, etc., relative to the true economic income, not just what shows up on your tax return, but perhaps profits you make through your corporation that doesn't show up right there. And what we see is that indeed in the period of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, what made the tax rate on the rich so high was primarily the corporate income tax that took, roughly speaking, half of all U.S. profits while now we are down to something like uh, 16%, or if you, if you look at corporate tax revenue to, relative to total uh, uh, profits. And that was the tax that was the backstop, that was taking profits at source. And then on top of that, you had a very progressive individual income tax, but it's true with rates so high, high-income earners were reluctant to distribute themselves that much uh, extra money. So it's not the individual income tax really that succeeded in making the rates higher. The individual income tax was there to prevent actually the rich from paying themselves that much. And in that way, they, they succeeded. That was the philosophy. We put super high tax rates. It's a way for society to say we don't find it socially acceptable to have a very high income. And, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt made that statement explicitly several times. Yeah, this is something that always perplexes me about this topic. Um, when we talk about increasing taxes in the rich, which you do, and you know, you've done work for presidential candidates uh, trying to help them tax the rich, uh, come up with policies to tax the rich, what is the mix between actually trying to raise revenue and putting a cap on incomes? I mean, Bernie Sanders says billionaires shouldn't exist. AOC says every billionaire is a policy mistake. Do we want to put an end to billionaires or um, use them as an ATM for public programs? Well, I guess that will depend on where you are on, the, say, the democratic spectrum. Centuries tend to view the rich. Maybe there is revenue that we can tap prudently uh, from there. So that's perhaps, you know, the, the Joe Biden platform is going back to the Obama tax rate is in that uh, philosophy. More on the left, uh, as you say, you know, the, the Warren, Sanders, candidacy view uh, growing concentration of income and wealth at the top as a, as a structural problem in the economy that we need to address, and we need to address it forcefully by increasing dramatically tax rates on the rich. So in that sense, their can, candidacies, their platforms are really radical relative to what existed before in the debate. So instead of increasing the tax rate on the rich, as you said, by a by couple points here and there, they are really proposing going back to overall tax rates on the rich 
to 60, 70, 80 percent as they existed decades ago in the post-World War II decades. That is, when you combine the wealth tax proposals, the corporate tax proposals, the increasing tax rate on income, you go up to rates dramatically. So instead of having the top 400 pay 23%, they pay something like 60-something or 70% with Warren and up to almost 100% with uh, uh, Sanders. Okay, so you are proposing a 6% national income tax, which uh, um, would uh, apply to all forms of income with no deductions, uh, no exemptions. Like So six, labor income, profit income, interest, dividends, 6%. That would raise close to 6% of GDP, allowing for some slippage. That plus uh, cracking down on evasion and a modest wealth tax, you're talking about raising 10% of national income to fund increased spending on health care, early education, child care, and, uh, and sales taxes. Is that pretty much a summary of your program? Yes. Well, I mean, that's one example we, we describe in the book in the sense that our reading of history is that if you really want to tackle the, the problem of uh, concentration of income and wealth, taxation is the most direct and the most historically proven tool uh, to, to make it work. And what we say in the book is that if you do it well with good enforcement, you can succeed. And we give examples with the wealth tax, how to fix the corporate tax, how to fix loopholes uh, in the individual income tax. And that's really about fixing the problem of growing income concentration. Now, if you want to expand the, the welfare state, the biggest item there is, is healthcare, where currently, essentially, American workers who get their healthcare through their employers uh, have to pay full price because it's managed by the employer, but in the end, it's the worker who uh, uh, bears the, the burden in reduced wages. So, so the current form of funding is very unfair in the sense that the secretary pays the same as uh, the executive, and that's the, the way all other advanced economies do it, is through taxation that is based on ability to pay. And to do that, taxing the rich is not going to be sufficient to raise the revenue you need, and that's why you need a form of taxation uh, that would be fair, but would look like a truly uh, a tax truly proportional on income. And that's what the national income tax concept we, we propose uh, is about. I noticed, maybe I missed it, but I don't see you saying anything about the deficit now, which is something like 4% of GDP. Is that a good idea running, you know, in what are relatively good times by most conventional measures, a 4% deficit? So what is true is that in the fact that in, we are in a, in a peak year of the business cycle with an employment rate extremely low, and we have a really big deficit rate of $1 trillion, which is almost 5% of uh, GDP, which tells you that structurally there is a deficit. That is, Trump cut taxes, and, and therefore taxes don't cover uh, the, the, the spending uh, we need. At the same time, we pay essentially 0% in real terms on, on our uh, uh, public debt, and therefore uh, having debt is not costly, at least not at the moment. And, and that's why, you know, it, it makes for a, a difficult trade-off. You know that in the long run, you, of course, cannot put everything on, on, on debt. That's not advisable. But certainly in the short run, to do transitions to Medicare for all, etc., it, it is a, a tool potentially, potentially available. Yes, but of course, we're not uh, doing anything like that with it or investing in an infrastructure. We're just uh, letting rich people. Yes, no, currently, it's, uh, yes. Tax cut on the rich, that's certainly not a wise 
way to spend federal resources. Your ideas of, of increased spending and the kind of welfare state you're talking about fall well short of a Scandinavian-style welfare state. To do that, we need like 20 percentage points of GDP or close to it. Uh, is that a political preference or um, or you just think it's too far too soon? Yes, you, you, you have to be uh, gradual, I guess, and, and societies will differ in how much they want uh, things to be done through the government or through the, the, the private sector, but, but healthcare is perhaps the most striking example of something we really need to fund through the government for the very simple reason that cheap healthcare doesn't exist. You know, it's costly to use doctors, to use medical uh, procedures, it's costly for everybody you know, to treat a heart attack, cure cancer, give birth, and therefore, if it's, if, if it's costly, you can't ask everybody to pay full price. Uh, the, the cost has to be modulated on ability to pay, and that's what taxation and government funding is about. And the U.S. is starting to grapple with that, that situation, and that's why you see the more radical Medicare for All plans being proposed. The, the current situation is just not uh, sustainable, so I, so I predict that sooner or later you'll you, you see more government uh, involvement to make the, the, the funding not such a crushing burden uh, on, the, on the working class uh, as, as it currently is. A lot of people would hear what you're saying and say, well, you just can never tax the rich. You can never close corporate tax loopholes. The rich have clever lawyers and there's you know, this whole tax shelter industry and there's just no way to capture all this money. You know, there's a fatalism about it. It's just impossible. Uh, what do you say to that? So actually, the, the, perhaps if there is one key message uh, from our book is that this fatalism is actually wrong. That is, there are ways that experts can design to make taxes work, and we give examples. And precisely, you know, in the case of the, of the, of the corporate income tax, currently we let multinationals tell us where they make their profits, and they tell us that they make their profits in low-tax places. But it wouldn't be that hard to tax them on their worldwide profits so that uh, no matter where they say the profits are, they pay uh, a substantial tax rate. And actually, candidates have, have, have proposed similar plans. So for all taxes, if we really want to tax the rich successfully, we can. Our history tells us that this happened in the United States uh, for decades. It can happen uh, again. Indeed, uh, we see our role as, as tax experts of precisely helping provide the right plumbing, uh, if you want, you know, to the tax infrastructure so that there are no uh, leaks. And we believe uh, that it is possible. That was Emmanuel Saez, a professor of economics at Berkeley and co-author, along with Gabriel Zuckman, of The Triumph of Injustice, just out from Norton. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a utopian dream from Ellen Aline wish. Till next week, bye. Need a planet without cars and wars. No wars, no cars, no wars, no cars. I wish it could be true.